to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. My guest today is J.D. Sherman. J.D. is the President and Chief Operating Officer of HubSpot. Before joining HubSpot, he worked in finance, serving as the CFO of Akamai and Chief Financial Executive of IBM's Systems and Technology Group. J.D., welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm excited because I I hear about your company a lot these days, uh, especially even in in Asia. I've I've been seeing you guys doing a lot of outreach and stuff. So I'm excited to have you on and uh, hopefully we can help your cause here. Um, Why don't you give us a little bit of background? You know, I gave the broad strokes... uh, in the introduction, but maybe you could give us a little personal background uh, for the audience. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, I have mostly a finance career until my time at HubSpot. In fact, I was very happily uh, entrenched in my my CFO role at Akamai Technologies, which is, is a great company, but I happened to meet uh, Brian Halligan and Darmesh Shah, our founders at, at HubSpot, and uh, they were talking about hiring a COO, and I got—I actually got introduced to Brian to do it, be a back channel reference for one of their candidates. But oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he and I kind of hit it off, and we started talking. And he was starting to tell me about their view of the world, which was that you know the way people live, work, shop, and buy today is just totally different than how they did ten or fifteen years ago. We're just so hard to interrupt. The old marketing and sales playbook just didn't work. Um, so there needed to be a new marketing sales playbook that they were calling inbound marketing, which is Mm-hmm. less about interrupting your customers or prospects while they're on somebody else's uh, television show or reading the newspaper or something like that. And uh, instead, creating a magnet around your business with remarkable content and helpful uh, engagement where your customers lived and work today, which is in on the internet and over social media. It just made so much sense to me that um, it seemed like there was a big opportunity there. So I actually took the role as chief operating officer, and that was seven years ago, and uh, it's been a great run since. That's a that's a very cool story. Thanks for sharing that. I I had no clue uh, that that's how you got you got connected with the, the company, and it must have been quite a um, quite a conversation to to literally have you step out of your finance role and join this. Uh, I guess was it was this before you guys listed? It was, yes. Yeah. So this was back in uh, the end of 2011. I started talking to Brian and Darmesh, and company was about it. Sort of had hit its product market fit, so they definitely had figured out that there was a, a a market need for their product, and they were starting to get traction with it. But we hadn't sort of figured out business model fit yet. So it was about a 20 million dollar revenue business with about 200 employees, but it wasn't quite clear yet how we would scale. Like for example, um, the customer churn was just really horrible. It wasn't going to scale. And as you know, from a, a software as a service business, if you if your customers don't stick around, you're going to have a real, real trouble building a, a strong business on that. So, you know, there are problems like that that had to be addressed. And even back then, Brian and Darmesh were thinking big and they knew that they wanted to build a business that scaled, not just simply a, uh, a software product that eventually would maybe end up in the hands of another company through an acquisition or something. Right. OK. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it sounds like it was uh, it was uh, somewhat of a mature company. So it wasn't a pure startup, but uh, nonetheless, it was at the sort of inflection point. 
Um, and I guess that's probably why they were looking to hire more executives and, and really learn, yeah, that's figure exactly out how to scale right. it to the next level. I, I don't think that I, with my background, would be that useful to a pure startup. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not the kind of guy who's uh, going to you know be creative in terms of the products that you would build or uh, engaging with prospects and customers to figure out if there's a great market fit there. I'm more of a scale-up guy. And we've, the way we talk about HubSpot even now is we've moved from startup mode to scale-up mode. And there's mm. a tremendous amount of leverage for a business in that scale up mode because you can initially you it's exciting to get to the point where, you know, you even can take your company public. And we had when we took our company public, you know, maybe 10,000 customers, which was pretty amazing. But right. now after, you know, four or five years being public, we have over 50,000 customers and we've gone from one product line to three product lines. We've really built a platform that um, lots of our customers are using to integrate the rest of their uh, business software into. And so you could just have a much bigger impact if you figure out how to really scale your company. Wow, that's incredible. What um, I, I don't know if you, maybe, maybe you can spend a little bit of time um, and it doesn't have to be too long, but how did the two co-founders actually start HubSpot from the very beginning? Oh, sure. I'm happy to tell you that story. It's one that we told, you know, 75 times on the IPO road. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. That. So basically, Brian and Darmesh were uh, uh, colleagues at the Slow School of Business at MIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darmesh had sold a business, started and sold a business earlier in his career and was back at, uh, and was now getting his MBA. And Brian had grown up through um, the sales channel of a company called PTC, uh, Parametric Technology in Boston. And he was really a sales and marketing guy. Um, right. And while Brian was at MIT, he was working with um, uh, a local VC and trying to help their portfolio companies, you know, get their go-to-market act together. Um, what Brian was finding was these these companies would get um, lots of VC funding. And then he'd say, okay, great, what's your playbook? And they all had exactly the same playbook, which is we're going to buy a bunch of ads, we're going to do some PR, we're going to hire mm-hmm. um, sales reps who are going to cold call, we're going to buy lists, and we're going to email the lists. And uh, he'd say, how's that working for you? And they're like, well, it's a tough slog. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had that in the back of his head. And then he met Darmesh, who had started a blog called onstartups.com, mm-hmm. where he basically wrote about his experience as a startup founder and advice he learned and everything like that. And Darmesh was building this huge audience, really with no resources whatsoever, other than, you know, typing onto his computer and and creating content that people were searching for, that people were really uh, trying to find, not trying to interrupt them, but drawing them in like a magnet. And they kind of put two and two together. And they said, well, the first problem is we have to teach people how to do this. And that's where inbound marketing came from. And the, the two of them actually have written a book called Inbound Marketing to talk about sort of that strategy. The second part was a little bit of discovery as well, which was that Brian said, all right, I'm going to go put this playbook into place with some of these portfolio companies. And he said, what kind of tools do we need? And Darmesh said, oh, it's pretty simple because Darmesh is a tech guy. You need a website, you need a blog, you need social media tools, you need an email tool, you need landing pages, you need forms, and all this stuff has to work together and you just wire it this way and that way. And Brian's head started to spin because mere mortals can't pull that off. What you need is a platform to be able to do that. And so they set off to build HubSpot as sort of a tool to en- en- enable people to run this new inbound marketing playbook. 
And what's happened over the 10 or 12 years since is that we've expanded that to include the sales part of uh, the customer experience and then most recently the service part of the customer experience. Right. So this is, uh, yeah, so th- it, that's, a, well, that's a great story. And I think it came at a time uh, during, uh, I guess, sort of the internet where Web 2.0 and people were starting to blog and, and this sort of thing. So it was uh, very timely for this business to launch uh, HubSpots uh, from the early days. Um, you mentioned inbound marketing earlier, uh, and you differentiated that between sort of traditional marketing, which you said was um, kind of like disrupting, uh, like watching an ad on TV or during the Super Bowl or, or this sort of thing versus inbound marketing. Maybe you could ex- elaborate a little bit on what exactly is inbound marketing um, and and how is it uh, like how has it grown today versus, say, um, early days of Web 2.0? Sure. OK, so there's two, the two ways I like to think about inbound inbound marketing as not a, a, a career marketer or salesperson. Mm-hmm. Um, one way is from a consumer's perspective, which is inbound marketing is about uh, adding value before you extract value. Um, if you think about, um, and it's about being helpful rather than interruptive. So if you think about an advertisement that you might see in a newspaper or listen to on the radio or even a banner ad um, that you might come across on the internet, that's somebody trying to catch your attention and extract some of your time and and effort before they've really added any value to you. And it may, may or may not be interesting to you. Whereas when you create your own content, whether it's a blog or a podcast like this or video or, you know, engagement on social media, that that gets found by an audience who's looking for your content and it's helpful, not interruptive, and it's going to add value to them before it extracts value to them. The other part about the other strategy about inbound marketing and sales is you don't want to start with, uh, hey, my product is this awesome sewing machine. Why don't you buy my product? You want to start talking about, you know, how do you uh, how do you use this machine or what are some of the ways that people have have solved these problems with with similar products mm-hmm. and draw people into solving a problem rather than immediately going to here's a product you should buy and, and I want to extract this value from you. So that's the one way I like to explain it. The other way comes from my finance background, which is uh, I think about the first engagement I ever had with the CMO of my company, Akamai, was uh, he came into my office and he had an opportunity <clears throat> to spend millions of dollars to put our company logo on the on the wall of uh, Fenway Park, where the Boston Red Sox play, the baseball mm-hmm. team. Yep. And it was going to cost lots and lots of money. And it was really hard to uh, to sort of attribute that to any ROI um, because what he was doing basically was renting somebody else's audience. He was renting from the Red Sox the people that went into the into the stadium. Whereas yeah. when you're doing content marketing, you're building an asset with your uh, with your content, so you're kind of building a factory. It's an asset rather than just an expense. And once you've built that factory, it takes a while to build where, you know, you get visitors to your website and your content is uh, starts to get search authority, et cetera. Once you've built it, though, the, the, the engagement and the leads and the customers start coming in. And even if you turn off the lights of your marketing department, you still get those leads and those customers coming in over time. Right. So, so, uh, okay. All right. So, so that's a, that's a very good way of explaining it. I mean, I think that's, 
it, it particularly helps because now in on the internet, there's just just a flood of content, right? And so the traditional ways of, of sort of uh, trying to interrupt people and get their attention, uh, that doesn't work. So you kind of have to build it uh, more organically. You have to build trust with your audience, like you said, uh, build sort of a tribe or, or a following. Um, and then that creates this inbound marketing channel where you can then uh, eventually uh, sell them or maybe it becomes a reverse inquiry and they just request products from you. So that that definitely makes sense. Um, so let's talk about HubSpot specifically. You, you mentioned that, uh, look, anyone that's listening that's tried to sort of set up a blog and try to monetize it online, I think, has gone through all the sort of pain points of, you know, literally setting up a WordPress website, connecting a uh, email service provider like ConvertKit or MailChimp or one, something like that, and then trying to plug in maybe like a ClickFunnels uh, and uh, some sort of scheduling thing. And it's it's a nightmare. I've, I've actually personally done it myself or tried a couple times and it's an absolute nightmare. And so my understanding is that HubSpot aims to basically solve all of this in a one-stop shop solution. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. Okay, so so and then the, the types of uh, of clients. I mean, you guys are dealing with basically large corporations, enterprises. Uh, do you actually have anything on sort of the smaller business and and just solo solopreneur type uh, level, or is it mainly due to pricing for enterprises? So actually, we target uh, our customer base that that we want to try to help is actually the mid market, the smaller and medium businesses. We really oh. don't go after the large enterprises. One of the great things about the internet and technology in general, and therefore inbound marketing and sales in this whole approach, is it's kind of a democratization of uh, of business. Because in the old world, where it was about traditional advertising and interrupting, it was about the size of your wallet. How much could you spend uh, to you know get people's attention? That was really difficult for smaller businesses. In this new world, it's about the size of your brain. It's about the customer experience you create. It's about the content you create. It's about the way you take care of, of your prospects, et cetera. And that's really good news for small and medium businesses. And so we think uh, there's a huge opportunity for those types of businesses in this world. And that's what we want to that's what, what we want to focus on. Um, you know, we have 50,000 customers and our average customer probably has 50 to 75 employees. Huh. Um, we don't have a ton of very large uh, customers, although, frankly, I think they should probably be using an uh, inbound marketing and sales approach. And we'd love if they would use our software as well. But we really focus on that mid-market. Right. And and uh, it, does that include <clears throat> social media marketing as well on the platform? Yes, it does. So we we have social media marketing tools uh, on for, for HubSpot as well. The way I think about, we have a very broad uh, set of tools, mm-hmm. everything from, uh, you know, the top of the funnel type tools to get to, to grow your audiences right through the types of tools that you use to take care of your customers and actually create advocates and promoters from your customers who turn out in this day and age, uh, you know, in a major uh, sort of evolution to be probably your best route to market. Um, so we we have a very broad range of tools. There are we also have something like 200 software companies that have an integration with HubSpot, and and that includes a lot of the social media uh, advanced tool sets because sometimes a customer of ours is going to want to have a more sophisticated approach to social media marketing or a more sophisticated approach to uh, their website uh, or or 
or et cetera. And we're not going to build all of that sophistication, particularly since we're targeted at the mid-market. So we also allow our customers through APIs and et cetera to integrate other tool sets with HubSpot. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, well, mar- marketing is, is evolving as well as uh, as time goes on. So it's good to, uh, to offer all the tools and I'm sure you can customize it uh, based off of what yeah. your company needs and, and this sort of thing. I, I, I really like how in you... In early just, days, we actually thought we were going to be an all-in-one tool. Mm-hmm. And what you realize is, and back in the day, there we, we actually have a guy that works for us now named Scott Brinker, who pu- publishes the MarTech 5000, this chart of 5,000 companies in the marketing tech space. Oh, we really? thought, you know, we thought, well, nobody's going to need to use all that. They're just going to use HubSpot. We're going to be an all-in-one platform. We realize that that's frankly impossible because we can't do it all and people want uh, to be specialized in one area or more sophisticated in one area. So we've started to think about uh, our mission not to be an all-in-one, but to be an all-on-one. Like if we can help our customers with a platform that's sort of the center of gravity for their uh, their flywheel, as we like to call it, which is about marketing, sales, and services, uh, then, then we're going to really help them grow their businesses. Right. I like how JD. I like how you explained it from uh, what what you guys do from a finance uh, perspective. Because uh, I'm a finance guy, and I think a lot of our audience is is actually finance or investors. Um, and you, and you mentioned it viewing the marketing as not sort of not as an expense, but um, but as like almost like a balance sheet item, right? Like an asset or an investment, which I think exactly. is a unique way of 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 thinking about things. Um, and I imagine that's like a good sort of sales pitch to um, a CFO of one of these potential clients that you guys have. But I, I would think that one of the biggest pushbacks would be, uh, like you said, the ROI and how that is able, you know, how can you track that? Um, you know, what what would you say to to a CFO that is potentially looking at your solution um, that's pushing back with this type of question? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. In fact, I have I, I have a talk that I give that's called how to how to uh, convince your CFO or how to sell <laughs> inbound marketing and sales to your CFO. And that's exactly what it is. Because as you know, as a former finance guy, we view expenses in one way very differently than we view assets and, and liabilities, right? Totally. Expenses are something to be minimized and you get efficiency. Assets are something to invest in with, and, and get a return based That's on right. that. Another concept that I've uh, applied a sort of a finance background to that is more marketing and sales related to is a concept that I call customer capital, which is, you know, you have working capital, which is your short term assets minus your short term liability. And and if you have negative working capital, you're in real trouble. Your customer capital is the amount of promoters you have in your of your brand versus the amount of detractors, which you measure with net promoter score. And if that goes negative on you, you're going to have real trouble. You're going to have a lot of friction in your process. So the key, of course, uh, when you're working on assets and uh, and talking about investing in those assets is measuring the ROI. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other point I make with inbound marketing and sales is it's actually much easier to do attribution and figure out the ROI um, with uh, an inbound marketing and sales approach than it is with a broad brush uh, sort of uh, brand campaign, such as putting your your company's logo on a, on an arena or advertising, for example. Right. Um, you know, there are tools around there and what you can do and the advice I give to marketing and sales leaders is this is an opportunity for you to go collaborate with your finance teams and say, look, here's the data I have. What we want to do is we want to experiment. We want to put this in 
and see if what we get back out, we're going to, uh, you know, make that investment and see if it, re- and here's our hypothesis of what we think it's going to generate. And is it generating that or not? And get the finance team involved in that hmm. analysis. And then that collaboration really uh, tends to help the business. Do you think that the, the, that old school method of advertising still actually works? Like a, like buying, paying a million bucks for like a, ha- a Super Bowl halftime ad or stuff like that. I mean, is that still effective? Well, you know, actually, interestingly enough, I think the Big Bang, the Super Bowl, ad probably still works. I'm less convinced that, you know, sort of the broad brush advertising uh, that you see, you know, sort of all over the place, whether that's uh, whether that still works. It it must still be effective at some point because people still keep doing it. Like one of the things I ask very often when I'm talking to an audience about the old way is like, how many of you guys have ever gotten gotten a piece of mail, direct mail in your house and opened it up and said, boy, this looks like a really neat product, and then went and bought that product. <laughs> and of course, nobody has, I have not yet come across anybody that says they have done that, but somebody is lying because we still get a lot of direct mail. So it must work at some point. But, uh, you know, another observation, Darmesh has had this observation, I really believe him, is uh, it used to be that you could do that. And if it didn't work, you know, you had a zero ROI on it. Uh, And that was fine. You could live with a zero ROI. But nowadays, because people get frustrated with brands who behave badly, who interrupt them, who don't, you know, you actually have a negative ROI because you turn those people into detractors. And, you know, people like the percentage of time that somebody goes and looks either for reviews or talks to their friends about your product or service before they buy is it happens a majority of the time. And if you're creating friction by not behaving well as a brand, uh, it's going to be a problem. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I like uh, I like how you break that down between sort of detractors and, and what's uh, what's a creative or help helpful for your brand. Um, I, I'm curious what you think about, uh, you know, when I look at marketing um, and I'm not a marketer by any, by any means, but I've, I've kind of uh, had to study it uh, in the last few years when, you know, doing things like setting up this podcast, for example, and, and stuff like that, it kind of makes you have to get up to speed. You know, after Web 2.0, there was a period where if you were a blogger, you could get a lot of subscribers very easily. If you were an early, early adopter and um, and same thing as social media, I feel like if you were one of the first, you know, thousand users of Twitter, you automatically, you know, get a bunch of followers. And then now it's kind of been saturated. I feel like, you know, there everyone is is everywhere, all over social media, all over content marketing. Uh, it's 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 almost like it's it's the, the minimum bar that you need just to compete in the arena. Now, that doesn't that that's actually good for your business because it means that everyone out there just to play the game is going to have to have some sort of inbound marketing campaign or strategy, right? Um, some home base that they, they can build their business off of. I'm just curious right. is what you think is sort of what's the next iteration of this whole marketing thing, you know, because I know that a lot of there are still a lot of large sort of businesses and medium businesses that that need to do this and are coming online and they're getting savvy with social media, all these older, older school sort of business models that, you know, used to buy the billboards. They're now shifting. What's the next iteration for people, in your opinion, that that are here, or is this is this how it's going to be for for the foreseeable future? No, I think that's a I think that's an absolutely correct observation, and I think there are a couple of of things that uh, we're seeing that are you know somewhat tactical. This is like the conversation we have when our customers are are looking for advice from us, and 
it's sort of, uh, I guess I'd put it into sort of three buckets. The first is um, specialization. Uh, as you say, it's a very it's a very broad landscape out there and there's just so much noise now out there. Are, are we used to tell customers, you just have to crank out the content to get found. Right. And now what we say is it has to be carefully crafted and probably specialized to what you're trying to accomplish and lesser, lower, uh, a lesser amount of, of content of higher quality actually makes more sense in today's day and age than right. a lot of really crappy content. Right. And part of that goes back to the, you know, building trust in your brand thing. But that's the first part of it. The second part of it is I, we do believe and I, I believe that there's a, a healthy relationship between um, a paid advertising, a targeted paid advertising relationship and the content you create. Um, because today, you know, the worlds of Google and Facebook being these very dominant platforms, you want to sort of when you have content that is sort of working for you and creating some interest, you want to pour a little gasoline onto that fire by mm. sort of pushing that through paid channels, particularly Facebook and Google, which, uh, which are working very well. So that's that's the tactical advice we give to folks. And then the third really comes down to um, this new opportunity that we see, which is around delightful, delighted customers being your best route to market and making sure that you're creating from your own customer base, delighted customers who are going to advocate for you and right. be a great route market. And so I, I think that's the new opportunity that uh, particularly fits well with small and medium businesses because they tend to be closer to their customer. They tend to know more about what their customers want. Um, and so, you know, what, what our advice to customers who are talking about marketing sales initially is we say, well, you have to think about that across the entire customer lifecycle. And you have to ask yourself where you're putting those calories and if you're putting most of them at the sort of stage where you're engaging with your customers, trying to sell them your product, and you're not doing as much in the delighting your customers uh, part of the business, we suggest you kind of shift that around a little bit and try to create another channel to market, if you will, through delighted customers. That's a great way of, of thinking about it because it's uh, it, it, it's not it's not what most people think when they think about customers. They just think sort of bottom line and revenue and, and numbers, uh, but to to actually be able to then use them uh, to help you with the f with future marketing is is pretty clever. They want to do it as well when they're passionate about a brand. You know, they're they're definitely and it goes both ways. Unfortunately for all of us, right? If you if you if you deliver a bad customer experience, people can't wait to tell everybody else <laughs> about what a crappy company you are. Yes, yes, and it's it's a uh, it's a dangerous. It's a very slippery slope, especially with social media and, and this sort of thing these days. Um, so, so I know that you guys are are, are doing a lot of stuff uh, globally. Um, so, I was actually recently last weekend I was at in Sydney uh, for this start startup uh, conference called StartCon, and I saw. Uh, one of your colleagues there, Andrew Lindsay, who I think is uh, your corporate development guy, he was giving a nice right. talk. So I saw him speak. And so I, I've been seeing HubSpot a lot, you know, being based in Asia. Um, this is sort of a, a more of a frontier market for this whole. People are still getting up to speed with how to do marketing properly. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, what what your plans are, um, you know, for 2019 and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I was just in Asia myself last month mm -hmm. for two and a half weeks. I went to see all of our uh, offices. We have an office uh, in Singapore, which is our Asia Pac sort of corporate hub, our HQ. Uh, down in Sydney, we have a, a big team. And we also have a team now in Tokyo. Nice. Um, and uh, Asia is our fastest growing 
area. We've sort of uh, attacked the um, the international opportunity um, in phases, if you will. And I think we've gone pretty fast, actually, because uh, for a company as young as we are, we get 37, 38% of our revenue outside the U.S., which is wow. uh, in my, uh, pretty impressive. But we kind of did it in phases. Like phase one was basically take our playbook that we developed in the United States in English to other markets similar to the United States that spoke English. So we had a lot of early success in the UK and Ireland, and we've actually been in Sydney, Australia since 2015. So um, that made a ton of sense. The next phase was um, to localize. And we really have only been this at this for two, two and a half years where we finally localized our product into uh, four or five languages. But we're still, uh, with that playbook, largely targeting sort of mature markets where uh, we know the playbook, we know that the customer persona really well, and it fits with our sort of acquisition model, our cost, our cost of acquisition, mm-hmm. the way customers uh, want to be uh, engaged with. Uh, the phase three that I'm most excited about, which we're really just starting to sink our teeth into the opportunity, is in emerging markets because uh, we've kind of omitted that opportunity for a while. We didn't really have the, the go-to-market model for that model. But now that we have this freemium model, we have a free version of our software. We have a starter version of our software. Um, I think that positions us well to go after some markets like India and Brazil and others in Southeast Asia. Um, and I'm super excited about that opportunity. And we're going to start to experiment with that a little bit in 2019. That's fantastic. Yeah, you know, I, I it was probably ignorant of me because I, I wasn't aware. When I, when I thought of HubSpot, I always thought it was for much larger sort of organizations. So it never kind of... Uh, I never, I never actually researched it for on the smaller business or or even individual level. So that's that's fantastic to hear. Um, JD, thanks so much for your time. It's been it's been really it's been really fun catching up with you and, and interesting to hear about the growth that you guys are are experiencing and and uh, and we're excited to to see how HubSpot keeps growing. What's the uh, what's the best place that people can find you, follow you, or or learn more about HubSpot? Uh, well, certainly you can visit HubSpot.com. We have a blog that gets like 15 million visitors a month. I would encourage <laughs> wow. you. To so I know we've really built that up. Um, Practicing what you preach, right? <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. We are uh, some of the best inbound marketers and salespeople in the world, thankfully. And I, I playbook definitely works. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best place to start and learn about HubSpot. I would also say go to HubSpot.com and get started with our free software. It's literally uh, costless to sign up and pretty easy to get started. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for your time. And uh, we look forward to uh, hear more about HubSpot growth growing in the region here. Okay, Jay. Great talking to you. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. 
So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness. 